Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. So how, how's it going? How's You have a new book out, and you've been on tour Yes, I was in Los Angeles where we did three events, and that was great, uh, doing a lot over Zoom here in the U.S. and internationally. Um, I'm learning the meaning of the term sleep deprivation. I thought I knew, but I'm being exposed to all new splendors of sleep deprivation, so I'm basically like a science experiment, but uh, <laughs> everything's good. <laughs> so you've been doing international as well, you said? Yeah, I'm speaking at a conference on ESP Research uh, Sunday, and then, um, gosh, a whole number of other things, doing uh, Chicago, uh, Bay Area, both by Zoom, launching the book Uncertain Places uh, Monday night, the evening of the 7th on Coast to Coast, and uh, going nonstop, enjoying it immensely. But again, a lot of coffee, a lot of uh <laughs> glycerin vapor with nicotine oh, no. and uh we make it work <laughs> oh no <laughs> uh, a lot of air waiting in airports yes All right. um the travel hasn't been too bad actually la was a wonderful break and i was at the philosophical research society which i always enjoyed doing so la is my my home city even though i'm a born and bred new yorker i love los angeles nice. well the question i wanted to ask you just to start off with um, i have been reading your book which is Uncertain Places, which is an, an excellent, and I think I was talking to you a little bit about about it on email. I was really enjoying it. Um, Thank you. But I'm curious, just kind of like, I'm guess, is this your first kind of uh, foray out and about post-pandemic? Oh, gosh, I had been doing some stuff post-pandemic, uh, some travel here and there. You know, obviously, so much got disrupted and everything went to Zoom for the longest time. Yeah. But... I, I did a, a a horror film festival here in New York. Uh, I have done some traveling. Things have been opening up, not quite as much as I would like, but um, uh, I, I, there's definitely an uptick in live events. I spoke at a, a UFO conference here in New York a couple of weeks ago. That was a, a packed house. I'm giving a live talk in Brooklyn on November 17th at Film Noir Cinema. There'll be no restrictions there. There was no restrictions at PRS. Our workshops were sold out. So so it's been really nice. I mean, there's no substitute for being with people in three dimensions. Yeah. So that was the main question I wanted to ask you, which is given your your 
field of work and interact. I'm really curious about your interactions with people now versus pre-pandemic. And I, I think, you know, it goes without saying that probably the biggest tectonic shifts in consciousness and, and how people think about literally everything in our lifetimes have a, I probably have occurred in the last two years, two, three years. I agree. And what what are you talking to people about? What is your perception of where people are at at various places around the world? Um, has the vibe changed around the, the material you're you're presenting and how it's being received at all? Wow, that's a really interesting question. Um, I find that I am speaking to different kinds of groups right now. So I don't know if there's been a change in vibe so much as there's been a change in venue. You know, for example, anyone who has serious problems with my explorations of Satanism, I don't need to push the door in and go speak in front of their group. You know, there's certainly uh, outposts within the alternative spiritual culture where that's an issue and that's fine. I believe in freedom of assembly. You know, you don't have to invite me. I don't have to go. Um, I do find, frankly, that it's been a help insofar as I tend to come in contact with audiences now that I would say are more intellectually expansive on the whole. I'm not speaking in terms of individuals because you find exceptional people everywhere. But uh, for example, um, I was delivering a workshop at PRS uh, about a week ago. And there was a certain point in the workshop, it was a long afternoon together and we were covering a lot of different ground where we came back after a break and I said, well, it's time we talk about Satanism. And, you know, rather than get groans or people staring at the floor, um, people applauded. And I was really moved by that because I realized that it's controversial material and I'm not trying to push people's buttons. I'm simply not about that. I'm just sharing my search. And I was really moved by that, you know, and, and, and it's not necessary to have that kind of reception. But I was pleased that there was a willingness to engage the material. And that can be from a more idealistic perspective or that could be a more crit critical perspective. But th this process has been helpful for me because I do find I'm around people who are uh, on a group level, on a group level, not an individual level, uh, more expansive with respect to the search. And uh, one change that I have certainly detected by and large is with the mainstreaming of the UFO thesis that has yeah. prompted an openness in the culture in general that's really been extraordinary. And the UFO thesis is going to remain controversial, but the interjection of it deeply within to the, into the mainstream has opened up a lot of doors and avenues uh, maybe indirectly. For example, um, earlier this year in uh, the month of January, I was speaking at a conference on ESP research. And most of the people in attendance at this conference were either from the tech or venture capital world. And I really didn't know how they were going to respond to this talk. And the response was really positive. Even where there were criticisms, the criticisms were intelligent, they were pointed, they were fact-based. And I was just delighted. And, 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 and I, I, instead of there being, uh, you know, kind of off the shelf statements or tropes, 
you know, the argument is usually ESP is impossible because ESP is impossible, or there's not a shred of re uh, evidence, my favorite expression. Um, and instead of that, you know, where people had criticisms, they were really pointed and factual and helpful. And there was a great willingness to engage the material. So uh, I'm hesitant to talk in terms of change because human nature is so constant. But I, I do believe that, that in particular with the UFO thesis and with ESP research, I have witnessed a change. And, you know, like I was saying, maybe it's just a change in venue, but I have found audiences on the whole that are more intellectually expansive, which is really a delight. I've definitely seen that as well. And I also was, have been surprised to see how much interest there is in, in this material from the tech industry. And I think that's great because yep. I also am a tech person and I love it. Yep. So that's exciting because that's an exciting overlap for me. But I think it also makes sense. Um, I'm not big up on the UFO thing, but from the tech angle, I think it makes sense because at least from my way of thinking, you can look at magic or new thought, certainly things like Kabbalah uh, and, and things like this as programming languages for consciousness. And I think it just automatically makes sense to an engine, you know, perhaps counterintuitively, because we think of magic as such kind of like a flowy, you know, uh, Steve yep. Nicks, uh, you know, intuitive <laughs> type of thing, right? But but uh, but um, I think it totally makes sense to p people who have that type of process mentality and the idea of programming the mind, which is great, and I think which is something everyone needs to do. And also, I think the tech industry has, to all intents and purposes. Uh, made magic real in the in the sense yeah. that technology is magic. If you look at, I've for a long time have made the point that if you look at any of these old grimoires or theosophical books, all of the powers that are claiming that people are going to get, technology gives us. It's like we can bring material from the, you know things from the other side of the world to us. We can fly as if by magic carpet in an Uber. We can communicate like this as if by a crystal ball. You know, it's like it's, it's all real now. So the, the point I've been making to people is like, well. How do you deal with that world? You know, is there some type of framework or philosophical or ethical or moral framework that exists for coping with a world in which magic is real? Well, it turns out there is. It's the occult literature. So I yes. think that makes sense uh, as well. Did you ever see the show, speaking of Satanism, did you ever see the show Silicon Valley? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 character, the character who's like, actually, I'm a yeah. Levian Satanist. It's like a great... <laughs> Guilfoyle, is that? Yeah, 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 Guilfoyle. Yeah. yeah. And they're at a tech conference once and somebody's asking them, what's it like to work at such and such? And one of the guys says, it's living hell. And the other guy goes, but he's a Satanist. So <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed that. But you're so right what you say about tech. And I don't take enough time to appreciate that because tech is magical in the sense that, like, for example, if you take what would be considered in our age a form of primitive technology, like the 12-inch vinyl record, yeah. I understand how a 12-inch vinyl record reproduces sound forensically. And I can explain to my kids how, you know, this needle going into these grooves reproduces sound. And yet it's still absolutely mind-blowing, and it's a primitive piece of technology, speaking from our digital age. How much more so incredible is it that you and I are speaking in real time in two dimensions to who knows how many people you know, through binary code that is accurately with some within some reasonable variation reproducing us. And I, I do find that it's funny, Jason, you know, with respect to ESP research, with respect to the occult and surveys have confirmed this, the pushback 
that comes from academia and from within the intellectual culture, it comes from the humanities. It comes from the humanities. Interesting. Yeah. I was not and, aware of that. Yeah. And, and when you get into um, engineering, uh, when you get into coding, when you get into medicine, uh, the, the respondents to surveys tend to show a significant statistical jump with respect to their willingness to engage the material. The pushback comes in the academic world chiefly from humanities and psychology and some of the social sciences, far less so from the so-called hard sciences, uh, tech, physics, medicine, and it's quite remarkable. That's the the exact opposite of what I would have suspected outside of, I guess, right? maybe not even, right. I mean, psychology. I've definitely met some psychologists who are pretty territorial, but yep. I'm sure you have as well. But um, but why? What is what is the pushback from that that camp, those camps? I, I could only speculate because it's not my world, but my impression is that, first of all, within psychology, obviously you have lots of people in psychology who are open to transpersonal questions. But I think you also have a certain clutch of people who are very dedicated to seeing their field as a kind of credentialed science that, through coding of their own, produces replicable results and is a kind of closed circuit of findings. And the idea that something goes beyond cognition is threatening to that model, whereas I suppose, and you would think this same process might repeat itself in the other sciences, but I find that people who are into coding, for example, they might not identify themselves specifically as being interested in magic or the occult, but you start talking about chaos magic or Thelema or Crowley, more broadly defined, or Levian Satanism, and suddenly, you know, the, the, there's this wonderful kind of relaxation, and they're very, very interested in these different topics. I think that the roots of chaos theory and chaos magic are so closely related. Yeah. This idea that everything is a system, and if you change one thing within that system, it stands to reason that you've naturally created a ripple effect. There's not a coder on earth who wouldn't attest to that. And so when you have that way of thinking, whether it might be in biology or medicine or coding or engineering for that matter, you start to open up to different possibilities perhaps. And also I have to say, it may be that the more you know about something, the less certain you are. Uh, there are so many people in our culture from all walks of life who are happy to have hardcore convictions about things that they've never spent, yeah. you know, so much as a, a, yeah. a, a coffee break looking into. <laughs> and, and when you look into things and you realize how much we don't know, the more that we do, it can have an effect of opening up the psyche. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. You know, we get more and more sophisticated at measuring things. And yet the more we're able to measure, the less we're able to explain. And it's incredible because gathering of all this data, including, for example, you know, we, we, we have three uh, physicists who just won the, the Nobel Prize 
for their work with Bell's theorem, which colloquially speaking allows us to measure the ways in which objects at great distances, whether on the micro scale or the macro scale, affect one another. And we as a human community have gotten much, much better at making these measurements, but we still don't know why. There's still not the, the, there's still the causation puzzle. And when you're faced with that, depending upon the nature of your makeup, it can inspire awe. It can inspire awe, and it creates which scares questions. scares a lot of people. Scares people. Right. People like things to be, you know, nailed down a certain way. Yeah, I think, and I'm sure you found this as well. I really feel have found that there's kind of like a no man's land with particular, like with psychology, uh, and I suppose perhaps the humanities. But what I mean specifically is, you'll meet people who like say they're a Jungian. And they are interested in these topics only as far as perhaps Jung was willing to talk about. And they're willing to maybe admit that maybe tarot cards are interesting or something like that. But they're not <laughs> willing to go beyond that. They're not willing to make their own foray into direct experience. They just want to repeat kind of the discourse of, of uh, that, their field, whether that's Jung or... And, and I actually find that infuriating. Because it's yeah. like, well, it's yeah. not just an archetype. It's not just, you know, it's right. it's this thing that you can touch with, uh, uh, you know, sanitized gloves and, and, and things like that. You have to engage with it. But I think that that's really, really, really interesting and also very encouraging. Um, particularly about we should we should add magic to the STEM STEM studies in college. I think, um, but uh, <laughs> that would be great. But uh, I think I think I think that tech people. Um, are engaged in building things that didn't exist before and they're engaged yep. in the future and in, you know, coding is like, you know, uh, magical spells. They're engaged in learning arcane languages and conjuring and making things appear. And so it's, you know, like I, uh, there's a classic book called the structure of information and in computer programs, SCIP, where the whole, this is like the book they give all people in computer science. And it opens up with this whole discussion of computer programming as the sorcerer's art in detail. And this is like a textbook from the 80s, just for computer science uh, students yeah. from MIT. So you've, you've seen the movie uh, Ex Machina. Yes. Uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And there's a line in that movie I really love where um, the actor Oscar Isaacs is, is delivering a typically brilliant performance as the, the tech magnate in the movie. And he's making these, these, disarmingly lifelike AI driven robots. And this young man who wins the raffle to visit his weekend compound soon to discover he's a prisoner, basically, uh, objects to what he's doing and says, Hey, look, you know, you're, you're playing the part of God. You know, you're acting the part of the creator. And the Isaacs character says to him, well, you know, what else is creation but coding? And yeah. it's a kind of mind-blowing point, and it's delivered so simply and so succinctly, but it gives you something to live with and to sit with, and that probably comports well with what you're pointing out. Yeah, and I, I that absolutely, I see it that way, and I don't think that that is a statement made uniquely to that movie either. I mean, that that could be a Kabbalistic statement, you know, clearly. Right. And, and interestingly, like, you go back to the Renaissance and prior to the Renaissance, uh, you know, information theory itself was pretty much invented. Uh, you know, the, the history of where com computers go all the way back to uh, the invention of information theory. And that goes back to people studying the Kabbalah in the 12th century. And, mm -hmm. and even what we think of as computer 
uh, theory today that the genesis of it was in a mystical vision uh, that I think Raymond Lull or somebody like that had on a mountain in Majorca. I have it in the John D book. So it's like the whole, and then we have John D who's a scientist. The whole, the whole, from my way of thinking, the whole history of science, technology, and magic is all intertwined. It's all the same thing. It's all people's quest for knowledge. It's only, it's only perhaps, uh, you know, the institutionalization of things that has sought to put fences around areas of human inquiry. I think that that's, you know, a real tragedy. I think that the the core of hermeticism is the study of all, meaning yes. just human care, you know, smart people who are interested in how the universe works. I do in some some cases like the kind of satanic uh, uh, trope because it just gives a, you know, a symbol of defiance to everything. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, a defiance to rules, defiance to structure. And that's necessary and it's certainly a preliminary for learning anything new you have yes. to at least be dissatisfied with the status quo and so um i think that's fascinating and you, you mentioned ai you know we're entering this world where ai is real we're all experiencing it now beginning to experience it on a daily basis and it's like for me this point is so straightforward how do you interact how do you deal with a world in which human beings have magic powers and we're interacting with these massive corporations and artificial intelligences, which are non-human intelligences. Like how, what are you going to, how are you going to cope with that? Are you going to cope with that with like, yeah, like Freudian psychology? Like, no, you're like magic is the only, you know, the true magical tradition uh, is, is our best purchase on dealing with that reality. And so for me, because I, and I, I, I'm, I presume for you as well, you know, for me, since I come from this background, and I've been engaged with magic for my whole life. This stuff does not phase me at all. It's just it's interesting. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, great. There's AIs controlling everyone. Okay, well, this is just like, you know, this is just like interacting with gods from Crowley books and things like that. So, And it's funny. People often say to me, just uh, with regard to the occult in general, how do you know you're not going to contact maleficent beings and get all fucked up? And that's a reasonable question, but how much more so does that face us in the digital world? You know, we're interacting with AI all the time. We're interacting with, you know, God knows who on social media all the time. And we're constantly engaged in that. I mean, go on a dating app or just go on Twitter and, you know, look what is going to face you. And, and so we face these questions in every area of life. It's, it's, it's not exclusive to magic. In fact, you know, magic may be the area where it comes into play most exceptionally insofar as we are constantly um, confronting, dealing with, interacting with AI and unknown others worldwide over uh, the Internet, and we're doing it 24-7. So dealing with with intelligences from other intersections of time or dimensions, if I can put it that way, I mean, that's something that we're dealing with in the quotidian hours of life all the time yeah. and uh and you know questions of ethics as well um you know people always think well what's what's your ethical framework on the magical path and that's an entirely legit question but how much more so do we have to ask that question in quotidian life we break our word we're you know uh 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 engage in all kinds of things that violate other people all the time not to mention the, the vitriol and the hatred that yeah. constantly traffics online, including by lots of people who consider themselves 
very sensitive people who are on the side of wanting a, a better world. And, you know, people play pylon constantly. And, and these ethical questions uh, rarely enter into their framework or the questions of what effect it's having on them as an individual, which I think is very real. So mm. we have to bring these questions into the quotidian hours of life and not just think that there's something that belonged to the wizard. They do belong to the wizard, but they also belong to my neighbor, Mike, right. know, who's on Instagram right now. Yeah, I think, well, they do, they do belong to the wizard, but we're all wizards now. Yeah. You know, I, I, and, and technology is given one individual the power that nobody else no you could be be any level of king or emperor in world history you would not have the power of mike down the hall you know what i mean it's um, it's it's unbelievable and the things we avail ourselves of on uh, online all the time whether it's insulting you know people or whether it's availing ourselves of a service without asking the question is the person behind this service being paid appropriately? Is he or she being treated well? Whatever it may be. And I mean, talk about a king having his subjects. I'm probably coming into contact indirectly with 10,000 people over the course of a given day in supply chain who are providing services. Am I thinking about what relationship I'm entering into, even if indirectly, with these people? Yeah. I mean, I'm currently running Google ads for a guided meditation that I recorded. So as as we're speaking, I mean, tens of thousands of people all over the planet, I have my voice playing in their head, uh, guiding their consciousness through a, 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 an awakening experience. So I mean, how would that have been possible at any other time? Unthinkable, so, right? And for me, you'd I just be dead at I forty, and you'd never leave your village. You know? Right, right. <laughs> That's it. well. I'm forty, and I feel like I like you know I've never been more excited. You know, so uh, yeah. this is I, I love it. I I think this is such an exciting time, and yet people are, um, you know, not surprisingly, I think, um, well, they're shell shocked by a lot of things. Uh, certainly by the the events of the last two three years, but. You know, people have the tools. They truly do have the tools to do anything they want with with their life. Um, and the question is, what is the mental framework that allows you to do that? Because if you approach all of this technology with, I mean, we see it right now um, with a reactionary mindset or you know, a Christian fundamentalist uh, mindset. It's you know, the results are not not good. And yeah. We've had so many demonstrations in the last couple of years, even in the last couple of weeks, about how, um, you know, people can get people with this level of power and communication power can, you know, what a negative effect they can have. Yeah. Dre dredging up, you know, fascist ideologies or old ideas, you know, totalitarian ideas. And we live in a danger, we live in a much more dangerous world now. We have nuclear weapons are back on the table again. Yeah, you know, we have a war, a horrible, horrible war in Ukraine, and things are not so um, certain anymore, to say the very least. So I, I remember many years ago, when I was in publishing, there were writers who were very optimistically forecasting the world unifying impact of the internet. This was in the very, very early days. And I scratched my head and I thought, why on earth would you suppose that connectedness would inspire cooperation rather than friction? Uh, as I understand it, 
most of the leaders of the powers, both Allied and Axis, who engaged in the First World War, were related to one another. They were they mm. were cousins. The Tsar of Russia and the German Kaiser were cousins. That's a really <laughs> but, good point, actually. Yeah, it's like like have and, you ever have you ever moved in with with your with your best friend? No, it's like, wonderful. <laughs> right, right. <It's> like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, and 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 the notion that that intimacy uh, is somehow going to breed cooperation is not—I I would say it's untested, but unfortunately, it we is test well it. tested. <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean, just l look at these outbreaks—you know—among uh, 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 different tribes in both the the primal and and metaphorical sense that have been led by people who you know were were either second cousins or you know, just, just, just one degree of separation from one another. So I, right. I never saw any reason to assume that, that the web would create cooperation. And of course it's created diffusion. Yeah. Or, or people see themselves as a, a tribal, you know, uh, uh, they're so closely related that, you know, they, they have a tribal, uh, approach to the world and, and everyone else is wrong and they're right, you know, which we're also seeing in the U S so, yes. Or people go back to like ethnic nationalism, you know, from there. Yeah. So uh, I re I'm really glad you're bringing this up because uh, I've been thinking about this a lot actually in the last couple of days. I was even just, I was doing the dishes, I think yesterday or the day before. And I was thinking, it's like how much of my thinking about particularly subjects of magic and the occult, the occult is outdated thinking from the Clinton era, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, you know, when I was first getting into all this stuff in the 90s, all of the narratives around it were what you were saying. It's like, it's the end of history. We are all going to come together. It's like, you know, there's nothing left but to like proceed into some type of transcendent uh, unity for the world. It's kind of Terrence McKenna. We're all going to transcend past the object at the end of time. And I was thinking about this and I was like, well, all of these, you know, the 2012 thing, all of this, the idea that we're all proceeding to interconnection and massive awakening and that that will be a good thing. It's like, well, I think a lot of that, when you really think about it, is rooted in geopolitics. It's rooted in a view of the world in which it is the end of history. It's it's a trickle down of the end of history hypothesis and the idea that America is a, uni, a unipower, uni, excuse me, unipolar power in the world which is just not the case anymore. It did not pan out the way that way. America is not as, you know, it's a thesis. All these transcendent views of mysticism rely on American totalitarian dominance of the planet. And it has just not worked out that way. In fact, we're much more in danger of going straight back to World War II, which is quite, which should terrify everyone. Uh, because no one in our generation or even in the baby boomer generation has any idea of how bad that, that could absolutely, be. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the end of history thesis because, uh, I, I like Francis Fukuyama, the theorist who, 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 who shaped that, that thesis and, uh, Fukuyama, uh, has a new book out. The title of it escapes me, but I did read it. I liked it. And I, I always appreciated the ambition of Fukuyama's thought sure. and people were always ready to throw rocks at him because they didn't read him and they assumed that he was saying that events are going to stop. And his point, whatever one makes of it, is not that events are going to stop, 
but from his perspective, um, liberal market democracy is the finest system that humanity has ever lived under in terms of fostering the good life, broadly defined, a life of reasonable pursuit of some personal conception of happiness, longevity, health, hygiene, availability to exit the caste or role into which you were born, etc. Yeah. And so he argues very in a very supple, elegant fashion for that thesis and that the various systems that have motivated humanity to utopian ideals and dystopian failures have left standing this time-tested system, which he thinks is in need of uh, uh, defense. And, and one can argue for or against Fukuyama's premise, but what he's attempting to do is to argue for the primacy of ideas within a materialist framework. He's sort of a materialist Hegelian, but he's not a Marxist. He is a liberal capitalist. Mm -hmm. And and he argues very elegantly for that point of view. And it's valuable uh, partly because he just has a good mind and he's very capable of arguing persuasively, but in order to experience that, one actually has to read the man rather than just make his statement, the end of history, into a trope, which is what our online world loves sure. doing. And and he's really honoring the incredible material gravity of, of, of ideas. And he feels that classical liberalism is the idea yeah. that has delivered us yeah. to the good, the good life, at least insofar as, as we've been able to define it. And, um, p certain people would take umbrage at that assumption. They're welcome to argue with it, but the man is very interesting because when we talk about the gravity of ideas and of ideas serving as the predicate to everything, well, have at it, have at it. This is a man who takes seriously that thesis and hence his argument grew from it. So I, I like him. I, I like him in that regard. Yeah. And he he returns us to sort of grappling with questions of how and whether our ideas get tested because they have tremendous consequence for vast, vast numbers of people. Absolutely. Uh, which again, comports nicely with chaos theory and chaos magic. So uh, I don't know that Fukuyama will be a guest anytime soon on your oh, show. That would be great. Yeah, I've never considered that. I think you'd that. have a great discussion. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, I, well, well, I, I always was, I always loved his thesis. I was always very excited about it. And it is transcendent in, in a way. Uh, but we can see how over, and I remember reading that in the late nineties and just seeing, seeing the clear overlap between that and what, you know, cyber culture was doing and chaos magic and people like Terrence McKenna and the, and all that 2012 stuff, it all seemed to be of a piece and all coming together. And that yep. was so exciting at the time. I guess my point is not that I disagree with him, but that that has become part of the fundamental kind of working uh, ideology of, of, 
uh, neoliberalism. We have people like Thomas Friedman came out with the world is flat, you know, making the same somewhat the same point in a less, um, uh, uh, less sexy uh, way. But um, I guess my point is not that I disagree with that because I generally do pragmatic, even just pragmatically. It's just that it's that that is perhaps overconfident. I think the overconfidence in that is starting to break down, whether it's the reemergence of um, ethno-nationalism, whether it's Putin, whether it's nuclear weapons being back on the table, whether it's Brexit, you know, uh, Trump, all the things that have happened in the last five years, even COVID. um, Let's just say that the thesis is being tested. Yeah. It hasn't broken down, but it's being severely tested. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm of different minds about this, you know, let me share this with you very candidly, and um, I'm probably going to get set on fire, you know, in the comments for this. But look, we're here to have an exchange. My audience uh-huh. is pretty. My audience is super chill, actually. Like people, oh, good. people are very open-minded and just like really sweet, and and I I'm very grateful for that because oh, a lot excellent. of people have you know it's there's a lot of places on the internet where it is not like that. So I'm very yeah. grateful for that. You can say that again. So 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 then with that as my 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 foundation let me let me venture this thesis and this is just something i'm thinking about as we're living in a world um that seems frighteningly unraveling at least at the edges and maybe more the edges okay so we face it seems to me um three or four basic challenges in the world at this instant one is climate change uh, one is a kind of rise of ethno-nationalism, and we know how that movie ends. One is a kind of top-down global economic order that has expanded uh, the gap, perhaps, at least in some societies, between the haves and the have-nots. That's not true everywhere. Yeah. And for us here in the United States, and I'm speaking personally, um, I think we have a crisis in which commerce and healthcare have gotten so entangled yeah, that the system yeah. is breaking down yeah. and we are going to have to figure out something yeah. else. We can look to Canada, we can look to Ayn Rand, but we are <laughs> going to have to figure out something else. But this is a question that I've personally been wrestling with. Um, I very deeply value the free space to explore ideas. Next to physical safety, that's the most important thing in my life. And very frequently within digital culture, the term neoliberal is used in a negative way. And I understand the the usage, a kind of uh, corporate, globalist, militarist um, uh, model that, yes, allows for a gay pride picnic and, 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 and is happy to divide us all up into demographic groups and sell us stuff. And, and there is within that framework, a reasonable degree of freedom to pursue belief, conviction, sense of personal happiness. Although there are some people who would dispute me on that last point, and that's, that's fine. I am wondering that even if, even if you uh, abide the definition of neoliberalism that's used uh, in the negative, so Francis Fukuyama, for example, would be described by his opponents as neoliberal. He would say, no, I'm classically liberal and this is what I believe. So, okay, that's a fair debate. 
But if you were to even abide the definition of neoliberal in the, in the negative sense, I guess my question is, are we as a community of seekers uh, so right to be negative towards uh, that in the sense that it embeds within it certain crises and it also embeds within it certain things that are extraordinarily good and helpful and a tonic to the human situation. I mean, you and I are talking right now right. over Zoom. Riverside was wonky, so we went to Zoom. We'll do this, we'll do that. And we do have, um, at this juncture of time, a great deal of freedom to yeah. explore our ideas, our wishes. Uh, we're not getting shut down, et cetera, et cetera. And I can only imagine people in Kiev who would just give anything yes. to yes. Uh, yeah. claim those circumstances. No, I agree with you. I, and even just if you look at it pragmatically, and I think that if you're a spiritual person, if you're a seeker, whatever you want to call it, I mean, you're 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 in this world, but not of it. And so the most important thing in many cases is, like you were saying, like the, the freedom to pursue your beliefs or curiosity or even religion, right? And I make this point to people. It's like, you, know, you see people online ranting about the evils of capitalism and all that. And yes, we can talk about, you know, that forever. Um, but you know, I kind of make the point to people, it's like, well, yes, we live under this capitalist neoliberal system, but you know what? Like capitalism will at least sell you spirituality. That's better than not having access to it. You know, commodifying it and selling it to you, that's way preferable. I mean, you look at like how Tibet was treated on, under Mount, how it currently is treated, you know, with torture and concentration camps, or you look at the suppression of... Um, people under fascism we know how that yeah. movie ends you know it's like you don't want that and and we have to be careful too because you know this the critique of you know i i you know it's just it's just incontrovertible the critique of neoliberalism or the critique of the american system at this point or the western system or the capitalist system is um completely porous at the edges with russian state propaganda i mean i i i yeah found that I found that irritating when people first started saying it because after 2016 because I felt it they were dodging but you know observing their own mistakes and contradictions but I just think it's incontrovertible you go on threads now on Instagram or Reddit and somebody will be you know arguing you know against the Ukraine or against neoliberalism and you look at their profile and it's like zero likes and they only follow jimmy right. Thor and and uh right right and, uh, yeah and you know Tulsi it's Gabbard, like, no. you know and it's like and, and, and rt and it's like right. you know it's a real thing and and you know the critique of neoliberalism and the idea that you know funnily enough i mean it's like the idea that america is like one big satanist gay pride parade is kind of like the attitude of the Russian, you know, that's Russian propaganda. I know, right? It's like, and that must be interesting for you, right? It's like, it's like the Russians are like, oh, Americans are all Satanists. Yeah, you know, like, it's like, <laughs> great. The membership roles just are growing. I can't even, yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's really interesting. I mean, if you look at figures, political figures like uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, for example, they're hated on the left and they're hated on the right. I have an easier under a time understanding the hatred that emanates from the left because it's just closer to my neighborhood. The hatred sure. that emanates from the right, I'm, I could probably surmise it, but I'm making more of a stretch. And so I understand that, you know, people will say, well, look at Hillary Clinton. Um, she wants to cement and worked to cement along with Obama, a so-called neoliberal world order where you have 
free trade agreements, uh, so-called, you know, NAFTA and, and different trade organizations that make it super easy or easier to move capital across borders. So capital can kind of create a increasingly hierarchical, increasingly monopolistic, increasingly bottlenecked control over people's economies, people's lives. And then you have hand in glove with that, a projection of military might through NATO or what have you, where this system becomes increasingly uh, enforced. So you almost have an echo of what existed in the colonial era, where you had all this missionary activity backed by a very mighty uh, militaristic and mercantile machine. And, and they feel hatred for that because they feel that it cements us into a kind of capitalistic world order that provides token freedoms at the expense of yeah. overwhelming human uh, expansiveness. And I, I understand that critique. I understand that critique. And yet, I'm asking myself in terms of the systems that we have known uh, in the modern era and know up until this point, um, I, I have questions. I have questions about whether, in fact, uh, that system, while in grave need of reform, apropos of healthcare, for example, uh, um, apropos of climate change, is not in itself a road-tested system on which we have come to sleep comfortably uh, nestled within. And anybody who wants to advocate for an anarchistic or, or socialistic view, have at it. I will be first in line to listen and to hang out and to hear it. But I'm not persuaded at this point in time um, that that system has not proved, for all its problems, also incredibly nurturing to the human condition in ways that we outside of... Uh, Yemen, Syria, Ukraine, you name it, yeah. fail on a visceral level to appreciate. Now, of course, yeah. they would retort, the system that I'm describing is exactly what produced Yemen, Syria, Ukraine, etc. And I understand that. I also can't name a single epoch in human history where there haven't been wars fought yeah. over resources and power. And I can't fathom that yeah. that's going to go away. Yeah, Obama made a really funny point, actually, like a couple of weeks ago, he was on Pod Save America, and he was talking about um, people who are, you know, saying you know, people like ultra critics online, and people who are anarchists and, and, and so and, and uh, agitators online. And he's like, you know, uh, these people, uh, they're, they're not out in the streets leading the revolution. It is yeah. like they're, it's like they're doing nothing. They're just like online, and, and I thought that was so. It was I didn't quite do it as funnily as he did it, but no, yeah. I think that's right. I you know, and that was my critique for a long time. That was the uh, everything you just articulated, and I think the kind of the online left in the 2010s. That was the basic attitude. That was my attitude. But you know, it's like now you look at things and are you really so sure? Because the the fundamental thesis there is that neoliberal, whatever you want to call it, the system is this monolithic death star led by Hillary Clinton that is just going to steamroller over the planet, destroy the climate and is a, an inescapable closed loop. And it's like, are you really so sure about that? And I think that if anything, the last, certainly the, the, not just the war in Ukraine, but you know, the last four or five years should have 
severely shaken people's confidence. Have you read a book called Bloodlands by Timothy Snyder? No. This is like, I keep bringing this up because I, it's probably, I've read this recently. It's the, probably the most disturbing book I've ever read. He's a, he's a history professor at Yale and he's been getting a lot of uh, media traction uh, at the moment because of Ukraine. He's a scholar of, of um, uh, Ukrainian and Central, like Eastern European history. Um, so this book, Bloodlands, that he wrote is a history of this, the territory in between Germany and Russia in the 30s and 40s. So uh, Ukraine, Belarus, um, uh, Poland, and it's written from the thesis of, okay, well, what if we look at what happened here, not, not only from one side, but we just consider the pure human suffering of being caught in between the Stalinist and, and Nazi systems. And it is just, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's, indis- it's just like, it's brutal. I mean, 14 million people died there in horrible ways in the space of like two decades. And you just read this and it's just like, it just keeps going and going and going. And it's like, how are human beings uh, capable of this? And you, like, you know, one of the points we, he makes as well is, Americans only saw like like half a percent of the Holocaust. The rest was behind the Iron Curtain. We have no right, like right. the only reason. Well, now we have some sense of it because we've got access to to Russian archives um, after the fall of the Soviet Union. But it just staggers the imagination, the level of cruelty and suffering in and just pure hell realm that could happen for so long in a way that not only no one has experienced, but I think nobody could even imagine or conceptualize even in our most gruesome movies, you know, don't near or books or video games, couldn't possibly come close to what human beings are actually capable of doing to each other. And, and his point there is that that is what part of what was going on there is that people were caught in between two totalitarian systems from the left and from the right, theoretically, you know, Stalinism and, and, and Nazism. And, but that in reality, these systems kind of interlocked, played into each other, egged each other on, goaded each other on. And in ton, almost all the cases, you know, most of the killing was done by people that were conscripted in the countries uh, that, that were occupied. And in, in so many cases, people were just switching sides. It's like, oh, well, the Soviets are in control now. Well, I'm doing killing for them. Well, the Germans are in control now. Well, I'm doing killing for them. And so they would, ju- it was just a question of survival. And, um, we, that, that's, that is the world as it was before this supposedly terrible neoliberal hegemony came into, came into power. Yeah. You know? I think and that's we don't, we do important. not want that. <laughs> no. And I think that's a very important point. And, Look, you know, since the Second World War, with a few uh, exceptions, and there have been exceptions, one is Ukraine, the other is Sarajevo, a particularly tragic and catastrophic exception. Yeah, uh, yeah. Europe has known an incredible stretch of peace. Uh, you know, I mean, never mind World Wars One and Two, but, you know, the whole stretch of Stalinism, the outbreak of fascism, the... Uh, Crimean War, the the uh, Prussian Franco War, the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, this stuff was unremitting for generations and generations. And frankly, Jason, you know, there are days, and I might be accused of being tribal for saying this, and um, and I'm not trying to provoke or push buttons, but there are days where I think sometimes this 
world, this very tough world that we live in, does put the weight on all of our shoulders to pick a side, pick a side. Which lane are you in? You know, right. I am acutely aware that within Ukraine, you have a large population of Russian-speaking people who feel a sense of familial tie to the Russian nation. And I understand that. And I recognize the complexity of that. And I also recognize uh, that 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 Russia and 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 Russian-speaking people in the uh, Ukraine may not want to be part of NATO. May not want to take nascent steps in that direction, and so forth and so on. But lots of people in Ukraine do, in fact, uh, want that and have voted and protested and sometimes given their lives for that option. And. Uh, uh, um, there's information wars that go on all the time, yes. but nonetheless, people make their decisions. We make our decisions. And about three years ago on my birthday, I was invited to sit in on a Zoom call with people in Ukraine who at that time were uh, putting together a Holocaust memorial. And um, <laughs> this is what I get for my birthday. I <laughs> sit in on a Holocaust oh, no. memorial Zoom call with Ukraine. But I actually found it wonderful, fascinating, and we exchanged some different ideas. I was just there for that one session. But all I can think to myself is that the people that were on that call who were intellectuals, philanthropists, artists, etc., you know, these people probably are living in bombed out places or lining yeah. up to get water and so on and so forth. And when we were talking three years ago, it was a lot like this conversation. You know, everybody has their coffee. And what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What about this? And these people are now all living with their lives under yep. danger. Some of yep. them might be in the military, etc. And I care about that. And yeah. I care about that. And if I'm forced to choose a lane, that's my lane. I want those people to be safe. I want people who are interested in some sort of liberal, constitutionally protected way of life that they want to ensure for themselves and others that affords some reasonable pursuit of happiness, association, expression, belief. If I have to choose a lane, I'm choosing that lane. Yeah, I think that this is a, a pretty clear-cut situation. And um, yeah, it's interesting. This has been an interesting, it's been interesting to see how people's narratives have broken down around this online because you see the kind of, in this light, it's really hard to take seriously the kind of Jimmy Dore or whatever uh, uh, you know, dirtbag left argument that, well, yeah. it's just, it's just, you know, NATO propaganda. It's like, look, I mean, okay. Yeah. Not, not really. And pass <laughs> the Domino's pizza, you know, and right. turn on the coffee maker and get me an espresso. Right. You know? It's just like, but, but the th exactly. And then it's like, the, yeah. the, you know, one of the fascinating things about this period though, is this is, you know, a major war that is being fought in real time on social media in the sense that people are videoing it and putting it on TikTok, And it's like, that is probably unprecedented and all you have to do is look at what the russian how the russians are behaving and what they're doing on the ground it be gets real clear real quick who the aggressor I, is you know i couldn't agree more i couldn't agree more and um you know what, what I, I can add very little to that yeah it's it's uh, i was watching a vice thing on uh, on they did a this week about um, people who were just trying to like party and have fun in Ukraine and forget about the war, but they were like observing just the effects and interviewing people. It's, 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 uh, it's tragic. Um, it's tragic. I don't know. I've been, I've been trying well, to do know, what I, I can, of, but 
I think of the career of uh, Ezra Pound, a brilliant intellect, brilliant poet, brilliant writer. I, I would like to have known him. He was almost the Kanye West of that particular <laughs> yes, era. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, the guy obviously was imbalanced. He made a decision, and his decision was to side with fascist Italy. Now, his decision was the wrong decision. It was objectively wrong. And Pound, I'm sure, enormously powerful intellect, was perfectly capable of enunciating his reasons for doing that. Pound was also emotionally disturbed, but not every emotionally disturbed person decides that they're going to support fascism or some sort of bigoted hatred or something like that. In fact, you know, I would say that that probably occurs no more among people who experience bipolar than everybody who's supposedly cognitively normal just walking around out in the world. So it was a decision, and it was objectively wrong. And I'm sure that Pound proved very, very capable of defending his point of view. And um, if he had gotten his way, what would have happened to him? What would have happened to his contemporaries? You know, I suspect yeah. the same thing that happened to all of the supposed occultists who were swirling around, you know, Hitler and Himmler and Rudolf Hess. I mean, all these people were killed. Yeah. Sooner or later, all yeah. these people were sent to concentration yeah. camps unless they lived safely outside the uh, range of power of the Axis they all died. Yeah, those are the and, first those are the first people that get killed, the supporters because they're the ones who feel like they're owed something. Yeah, yeah. Karl Germer uh, not and he was not yeah. a supporter in any yeah. way of Nazism, but Karl Germer, you know, Crowley's collaborator and a Freemason, yeah. was was jailed. Uh, yeah. Ernst von Kraft, who was supposedly Hitler's astrologer, he died on the way to Buchenwald, you know. So people who get off on this idea of siding with something that's going to upend the decadent usual boy talk about an absence of skin in the game yeah it's it's all it's kind of like the people in lovecraft stories who summon the the horrible thing and then get eaten first and then they wonder why um <laughs> now we're getting too close to, to home but no i'm joshing but but no these are legit questions yeah um do, do you know who lord haha -Ha was Sure. Yeah. 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 Interesting person to think about in light of recent events. Yeah. And, and, and this, this was someone that the pound referenced and, uh, and, and it, it, it's a profoundly dangerous game to play from within a, a liberal democratic consumerist society to decide that, um, well, you know, I'm so disgusted with the hypocrisies, the violations, the crises that I observe in this society, and I'm so turned on by the oppositionalism, the aesthetics, the um, seeming radical contrarianism of uh, considering this other uh, system, whether it be uh, ultra-nationalist expansionism or some hardcore form of communism or fascism that I'm willing to throw my lot in with them in all but actual experience, in all but actual experience. So you have people in this nation who think, for example, uh, that Victor Urban provides some sort of a good <laughs> model 
who visit yes. Hungary under certain fellowships. People, certain people. <laughs> certain people where they get to like, you know, they're given a beautiful government hotel room. And <laughs> wow, this is what a wonderful system. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they go out to have espresso and then they come back and they tell the rest of us that, well, you know, maybe a, 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 a system that doesn't uh, elevate liberal self-expression above all is a good system. Right. And I have no idea... Um, how a person finds the conscience to express that without there being any actual commitment to living under that, because it's all being expressed from the Bay Area uh, or a nice campus somewhere in the Midwest or Manhattan. And yeah. I, I, I just really feel strongly that we need to... Um, be humiliated by the question of of experience and that experience should leaven our certainties and that we we it's it's usually the last thing we consider especially when online yeah absolutely i think you know i th i think that questioning and poking at a system and even being a a, a, a radical or proposing radical ideas within a system is a necessary, at least for our system, is a necessary part of our system. Our system needs people to kind of be jello biafra or something, you know, and kind of like poke, exactly. poke, poke at the side. But you have to understand that that's a function of the system. And that is different. I think we have to make a categorical, it's, it's basically like, that's like the guy in the meeting who raises his hand and is like, well, I don't know if we should do it this way. You know, but he's still in the meeting. You know what I mean? He's it's like, we, we have to make a categorical difference between that and, um, um, being a traitor, you know, it's like siding with something, something else. And, yeah. and it's the people, and this has been the case for forever, you know, it's like, and I've seen it, I've seen it with people, even in the occult world and certainly with the, the, the radical politics world online. Um, R Russia does pick people up. Like that's a real thing. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and, uh, do you know who, interesting historical tidbit, by the way, do you know who Walter Duranty was? No. So this is somebody I bring up just to remind people that they have a lot more power than they think in, in history. So Walter Duranty was a friend of Crowley's that did a ton of like occult rituals with him on mescaline in the 1910s and spent a lot of time partying with Crowley and was in his, his, uh, his, in the AA or something, I think, you know, in his order at the time. Um, he became a reporter for the New York times and then went to uh, went to the Soviet Union in the 1930s and was given the t the Tucker Carlson treatment, where you know, like they would literally like build whole fake cities for people. They do this in North Korea, where they take all the food and put it out so it looks like everyone has food and then no one eats it, no one can eat it. Um, and they make these fake realities for people who are foreign journalists or writers to try and seduce them um, in the same way that I think happened with with our dear friend Tuk Tuk over in Hungary. <laughs> um, but Walter Dranty went over there and then came back and wrote, was shown part of Ukraine. This was in the middle of the starvation in the 1930s. And came back and said, oh, yeah, there's no starvation in the Ukraine. It's fine. Everyone's doing wonderfully under the wonderful Stalinist system. And because of that, the inter no, there was no intervention in the Ukraine. And this is at a time where the starvation was so bad 
that family, you know, like children were eating their parents uh, and vice versa. There was just massive starvation uh, and, and and starvation is possibly the worst form of genocide, one of the worst form. I mean, I don't know how you can rank, but it's a particularly horrible way to die and it's a particularly horrible way of slow genocide. Um, and and as was experienced in the Ukraine, as was experienced later under German occupation, as was experienced under the British Empire in Bengal uh, and lots of other places. But, you know, um, so Walter, because of that, there was no intervention. And I think he has, the New York Times has retroactively apologized for this. Um, but it was just that one article that resulted in the start, you know, it was just the, the horror continuing. And the whole yeah. course of history was changed, possibly because of one person who was willing to side with, with, uh, and take seriously the, the propaganda of of a foreign power. Well, it's funny. I I, I've known in the past some of these guys, you know, who are engaged in some of this stuff today. I I knew Tucker for a time when I was in my twenties. I shared a drunken dinner once with Rod Dreyer, who's, you know, often in Hungary experiencing the splendors of Victor <laughs> Urban. And my experiences, and this could be said about anybody on the left, on the right, these people uh, partake of and enjoy um, the benefits of this uh, uh, system, broadly speaking, that we live under while encouraging the removal of its support beams. Yeah, and, yeah, you yeah, know, that's, yeah, that's well put. I vividly remember, you know, having a dinner with, 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 with Rod at the Cowgirl Hall of Fame in the West Village um, with uh, my boss at the time, uh, who's a gay married man, and the two of them were getting drunk singing Thompson Twin songs together. <laughs> and I that's thought, great. That's not so bad, is it? And and yet, you know, what sustains that is a uh, a system that Rod deems uh, excessively uh, licentious, and he wants to remove the support beams from that system and find a different ideal in the form of Victor Urban, who wants to uh, restrict individual liberties and self-expression. Uh, at least within the public realm, and again, I, 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 I'm, I'm deeply struck, uh, and this goes for people of all political stripes, all political stripes, at how we drink from the very well waters that we're sure are poison, and we want to substitute something in their place. Yeah, we have to be as very, quickly as possible. You know. Yeah, we have to be very careful about that. Also, because I think I just think that people in in America particularly are uh, uh, soft. And what I mean by that is they haven't, the majority of them have not traveled. The majority do not speak more than one language. Um, and the majority of them have not actually seen uh, war or how bad it can get. And I, I, I'm not saying I have, I'm just saying it's like, you know, there, there, there has to be this moment of understanding of scale and yeah. the shot, like the, the, I'm sure the shock that occurs when a bomb falls in your near you for the first time, it's like at that point, you know, all this, all this shit just goes out the window. Right. 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 It's just like, and I, I think that that, so people need to understand that. And, 
Um, yeah, there's a lot of Lord Ha Ha's out there. Yeah, and it's a lot more dangerous than than uh, it had. It, it's it's dangerous. It's dangerous, and uh, because of the power of social media, it is going to eventually influence people. It will influence uh, the electorate. There will be a kind of trickle down apropos of what you were describing about the New York Times reporter who was delighted with uh, Ukraine and the Soviet Union. And people are going to have to make their decisions. And I, I hope they make them carefully. I have very little faith in human nature. So I'm yep. almost saying that more as a, a kind of a rhetorical uh, device than really believing it. But 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 I, I think that's the only thing available to us. The individual sh should should make his or her decisions with great care. Yeah. Do you know Aki Sutterberg? No. He, he's written a bunch of, um, he's from Finland and he's a, a Finland neo-pagan and he's written a bunch of books on the, the kind of European uh, folk traditions and for inner traditions as well. He's a, he's a cool guy. Um, and I've talking, I've spoken with him a couple times on the podcast and he, he's, he's a man of the right, you know, he's, he's on the right, but from my, at least in my perspective and fin, you know, Finland is a very inscrutable uh, place to me in many ways. It doesn't totally make sense, but, or Finnish politics doesn't really make sense to me that much, but you know, they live right next to Russia and they've been training They're They all have to be in the military and they train from an early age to deal with the inevitability of conflict with Russia. And even he, like he was saying like, look, you know, you don't want this. What does Russia have to offer you know, crocodile, uh, you know, like that. It's like, like, and poverty and, and, you know, he, he had the phrase, it's like, you know, it's like, you see all these people on the right online thinking that, you know, Putin is some type of based super Superman, you know, coming to save everyone from the, the dangers of liberal democracy. And, and his point was like, look, you know, I don't support either side, but you don't want to side with Putin. That's silly. It's, you know, it's, it's, this is horrible. You don't want to be part of that system and they, they see it close up. So that was interesting to hear as well. Yeah. Well, I would imagine he has friends in Taiwan who could say something very much the same. And, um, you know, it's easy for Roger Waters to go on uh, CNN uh, <laughs> and announce that Taiwan is part of China. And of course, you've got, you know, did he do that? Did he do? I missed that. He did. Yes. That. What the hell? Yes. He had a wonderful weekend on CNN. Wow, well, where, that, that that puts some of his other activities into a new light. Yeah, he what, stated straight out Taiwan is fuck? part of China, and everybody knows that. What everybody the except the, the good men and women of Taiwan, uh, 25 million of whom have grown up on knowing some sense of, of democratic norms. I mean, so, look, so would he say that Tibet is also part of China, and they should just suck up all the torture they're getting? You'd have to ask Roger that, that question. That, that's that's new. I, do, I was not that completely recontextualized. Maybe, maybe he'd come on the show, you know. <laughs> yeah, that. I mean, there you go. You see one thing from somebody like that, and it's like all of a sudden it recontextualizes everything. Talk about a brick in the wall, you know. <laughs> and now, now dig this. You know, um, two of my books have been translated into Mandarin. One was One Simple Idea, which was translated by a publisher in Shanghai, Government censors cut out 38% of the book, and nothing that I write will ever be published in China again, period. And wow. the young woman who was the translator in Shanghai was terrific. I mean, we had all these great Skype sessions, and we were talking through how would a, uh, 
um, a contemporary person in China understands certain terms that we use all the time here in the U.S., like soul, and it was great. You know, we really had a wonderful back and forth. And then it all comes crashing down where you real where reality enters the room, and the government has to submit the book to a government censorship office, and they cut out everything that makes a metaphysical reference because that's verboten under the framework of the Communist Party. So that's that. Now, wow. by, and I also have another book called Infinite Potential, which is an anthology of Neville Goddard's writings that was translated, and that was published in Taiwan. Not a single problem. I've had two books published in Taiwan. Everything's been just fine. I will never be published again in China. And I'm just some guy, you know, sitting in a room with a swirly background behind me writing about metaphysics. I don't know that these people, uh, the Lord Haha's among us, understand how viscerally and immediately real all of this is. Yeah, no, this is yeah. not a fantasy to people in Finland. This is not yeah. a fantasy to people in Taiwan. I mean, this it is not a fantasy to people in Kiev, how absolutely real all this is. I just don't think they, they, they have a grasp of it. It's all emotional. It's all about winning the fight online. Yeah, it's all about, yeah, I'm still reeling from the Roger Waters thing. It's like, okay, yeah, like Taiwan should not exist. Israel should not exist. Okay. This is what's going on there. Simple words from behind gates in East Hampton, you know, where oh, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah Simple yeah. words. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, as Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a plan till they get hit in the face. And some of these people should probably be hit in the face. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have to love Mike Tyson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, okay, yeah, this is... This is yeah, abs I, I just agree. I agree. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's interesting... Um, I think that what you said of people enjoying the benefits of, of a society while kind of sawing at the legs of the table or however you put it, sawing at the supports, that that's yeah. just a perfect image. And I, I think that's something that people need, need to be very sober about. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like China. Um, and this is the thing, this is the crazy thing also when, because we also have people agitating, not just for fascism, but for, uh, communist communism and communist totalitarianism. And I, 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 you know, I think a lot of people have on the left have, have sympathies more in that direction, but it's like, all you need to do is look at, uh, Tibet, you know, it's like, they, it's like they, you know, the Maoists yep. invaded Tibet, they cattle prodded people, they tortured people, they tortured the, and raped the nuns, they burned down the monasteries, they turned it into, you know, talk about, uh, quote unquote, um, you know, capitalist realism or capitalist meaninglessness, you know, they're basically turning um, Tibet into a, a tourist destination and strip mall. This is like the most profound right. spiritual tradition, arguably on the planet. Yeah. And they just decided it was counter-revolutionary. And uh, all of those monks are still being tortured. You know, Falun Gong practitioners are being tortured, and you know, Muslims are being in concentration camps. Absolutely, in China, Uyghurs, you, know. you know, yeah, absolutely. this this just violates the basic fundamental laws of human dignity, which is not something that should be occurring on the planet at this time in history, yeah. at all. Period. Anywhere, and um, 
you know, I guess if that makes me a neoliberalist interventionist, so, so be it. You know, but you brought up you, earlier. I've been called that. I've been called worse. I've been called a centrist, which is apparently the worst That's thing, the worst thing you can be called, called on yeah, Twitter. Yeah. It's like, oh, not that. <laughs> no. Okay. I've changed my mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you brought up um, Bosnia earlier, or the Balkans crisis. And I was, when I, I first, yeah, when I, I, I when I, I moved recently and, and, uh, when I left LA, the first thing I did was I, I was reading a book called, this is what I, I do for, for energy fun. I don't read occult books. I just read about genocide now for fun. I don't know what well, it is. Well, it's a change of pace from <laughs> yeah. magical tradition. I'm, I'm just like, you know, coping with reality, I think. But um, yeah, there's a, uh, it's actually a comic named Safe Area Gorejda by Joe Sacco. Uh, who's a cartoonist, and he was like over there and just writing about day to day his life day to day under the on, in in Sarajevo under UN under occupation, right? And second to Bloodlands, that is just the the most awful you know book I've read, even though it's a comic book, and it's just it, it's this situation where everything was fine and everyone's wearing like Nikes and it seems like the a night everything's fine like the suburbs and people are getting along and it's the 90s and then all of a sudden it just goes deathly quiet for two weeks and then just people start killing each other and people start killing the Muslim minority and th these are people whose kids were playing together uh, you know two weeks earlier and now they're you know leading them to the town butcher who is cutting their throat and throwing them over a bridge because they can't spare the ammo. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are just nor innocent, normal men, women, and children. And, and I was looking at that and the only thing that stopped that was Clinton bombing mm -hmm. uh, uh, mm -hmm. Serbia. And I remember that mm -hmm. happening at the time. And, and, you know, I was raised by anti-war parents. So I'm, I am, was an am somewhat still reflexively anti-war so thinking oh like the u.s is going to another war i remember thinking people were saying oh he's doing this to distract from monica Lewinsky," but at least in this situation it was the only thing that stopped the mass the the, the genocide was a, a superior power coming in uh and i mean that just in sense of military yeah. force yeah right yeah. and just saying like no like you have to stop bullying you know genociding yeah. in yeah. this case and that's, that is, you, you know, that's just the way of the world. That's human nature. You know, yeah, it, the human nature so. is held in place by a balance of, of power and force. And we have to understand that the only reason why we, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons why we enjoy all these freedoms and privileges and ability to undermine the system if we want to or think freely is because America is the nuclear still the dominant nuclear superpower. Yes. If that changes, you know, it's it's not going to be like that anymore. Yeah. I I I agree and we face um a a precipice and tough decisions just with regard to Ukraine alone. If if Putin starts to brutalize the civilian population over the course of the winter, well, what are the probable outcomes? You know, one is that the Ukrainian military, through anti-drone technology from the West, might manage to um, stymie these advances. Um, the other is escalation. The other is some sort of territorial compromise. These things all carry risks, and one is going to have to ask questions about what that means. You know, I mean, the dominant 
perspective on the left right now on social media, and it bears underlining the words social media, uh, is that 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 territorial compromise is 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 necessary that's crazy and- to me that's crazy i've seen i've seen even jordan peterson was like coming out in like this scolding attitude and saying like you have to compromise with putin it's like no you fucking was he don't. saying that yeah like, he was it's like you asshole no you that's not mm-hmm. yeah we we know how this goes i mean people were yeah. trying to appease hitler in world war ii and i'm not saying putin is hitler but putin is putin and he's dangerous all on his own being who he is and yep. and um uh, that is crazy. Anyone who's ever like been in the most basic like schoolyard fight knows that's not how it goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I agree. I agree. And I think that we we did has, not start this war, and, right, and should not right, apologize for it. Right. And I realize I realize that it's an article of faith on the online left saying we did to start this war because of NATO expansion and so on and so forth. And even if one accepts that argument on its own terms, just as I'm willing to accept the neoliberal definition on the terms of people who use it as an epithet, even if one accepts that argument on its own terms, it is a fundamental fact of life that power does seek some degree of expansion, and it rarely does so in a vacuum. Uh, I would warrant that the people who voted for uh Zelensky in majority probably want to belong to the EU, probably want to belong to NATO. I, as best as I'm capable of projecting myself into another person's shoes, I would want to belong to a nation state that was part of NATO. I would want to belong to a nation state that was part of the EU. I I feel very strongly that no expansion of power occurs wholly in a vacuum. Uh, So you have to look at, well, is there receptivity to it? You know, what are the surrounding factors and so on and so forth? The very fact of NATO expansion in and of itself, to me, is not an argument for marching into a nation and just basically declaring by fiat and force that this now belongs to you. And one could argue with my reasoning, but I guess it really comes down ultimately because there's lots of arguments that could be made on either side and neither side is incapable of enunciating its arguments compellingly. And I get that. But again, I guess it comes down to if you're compelled to choose a lane, which lane are you in? And um, I know which lane I'm in. Yeah. Um, I can certainly see the NATO expansion angle. I've listened to all of Putin's policy speeches about this. They are rational. Uh, his position is rational and thought through. I think the narrative that he's crazy or that he has long COVID or something like that is I just agree. really silly. Um, it's just silly. Um, I think that he is acting rationally from his position, but that doesn't mean that that has to be our position. You know what I mean? It's like, like we also have a position and, uh, that's just the way of the the way of things. Just somebody can be perf- a perfectly rational actor and be acting rationally based on their territorial concerns, but they're still your enemy. And yeah. and that's just that's how it is. And I think and I get the NATO expansion thing, but I mean, like, let's let's think about that for a second. Like, on one hand, we have the wholesale slaughter and torture of civilians, um, un- 
you know, civilians. Uh, and on the other hand, we have what putting a Starbucks in Kiev. You know what I mean? Like what? That's the neoliberal NATO expansion. And I get that right. it's a nuclear border and all of that, but it's like, come on. And and it's interesting this, that reading this book, Bloodlands, as well. I mean, looking at the history of it, the really sobering one of the really sobering things that he points out in that book is that he just makes it so clear. It is, I recommend it for everyone. It, it recontextualizes so much, and you just realize that we really don't know that much about what happened um, because we never we never had the the information from the Soviet perspective and 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 so forth. Uh, so we never we never even as bad as we understand that period of time to his, of history to be we really don't get how bad it was and but the, one of the points he makes in that book is that that war was basically fought over Ukraine you know world war 2 in Europe was fought over Ukraine because in, in Ukraine they have this thing called the black earth which is this incredibly rich fertile soil that grows food really fast and I think it only exists in a couple other places in the world. There's some in Texas, actually, and a few other places. But, um, you know, that's why Ukraine is referred to as the breadbasket of the world. And so it's like looking back at history, it's like World War II, outside of the ideologies and everything, it's like at a fundamental level, it was fought about food. People didn't have enough to eat. You know, it's like in the Soviet Union, they were starving the Ukrainians. Uh, and the, in Germany, they didn't have enough to eat. So they wanted to genocide. They basically, you know, Germany basically wanted to treat Europe like the American, like consciously, like Americans treated um, the Indians and, and have, you know, basically kill everyone, take the land and put German farmers on it. And at a fundamental level, they were fighting over food and specifically they were fighting over Ukraine. So, you know, we, we, we can't lose sight of the fact that outside of all of this, propaganda whatever is being said here or certainly certainly whatever putin is saying which is they're denazifying ukraine and all this nonsense um there is ukraine is a strategic objective for for in the same way that i suppose you know countries in the middle east were for oil you know it's like they're they're fighting they're 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 trying to take something specific yeah it's interesting um there is the, the the very compelling thesis that every war that's been fought has been fought over resource depletion, and that's a fearsome thought. I, I'm also um, wanted to add sort of an adjunct, which is that there may be people listening who think, "Gee, you know, I thought these dudes were going to talk about metaphysics and <laughs> why don't they put on some magic?" And this is <laughs> metaphysics. This may be the framework that allows metaphysics to take place in terms of study, practice, inquiry, exchange. Um, whether people groove to what we're saying or not, and I suppose there'll be divisions about that, um, you've dedicated a huge amount of your adult life to exploring magic, to writing about uh, metaphysics, both in history and application. Uh, I've uh, attempted to do much the same thing, and we're not talking about this stuff because we're in a grumpy mood today. We're talking <laughs> about this stuff because we, we're trying to reckon with the framework that has allowed us and our colleagues and our friends and the people we exchange with to do this unimpeded over the course of a lifetime. Yeah. You know, I was just doing yeah. a podcast earlier with a young woman who was talking to me about her experience 
as a teenager of visiting a mall store where she was growing up and buying a copy of Anton LaVey's The Satanic Witch and how much it meant to her. And I yeah. thought, just unpack that statement for a second. Unpack that statement. She went to a mall store in middle America and bought a copy of The Satanic Witch, went home and mom and dad or a neighbor's mom and dad were pissed off, but there were no policy changes because of it. There were no book burnings because of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, the manager of the store didn't lose his job. Uh, nobody went on a campaign to silence Anton LaVey. It was just another Tuesday, just another Tuesday. Just live with that. Live with that. You know. Yeah. And we, we take that so many levels of that for granted. We really do. We really yeah. do. And there almost needs to be a Twilight Zone episode where that's stripped of a person for an hour, you know, and no matter how many times <laughs> Rod Serling did it, and he did it plenty, the lesson just didn't seep in. It just didn't seep in, I guess, because it's emotional. And, you, you, you know, there has to be something experiential in it. Yeah. Well, to bring it back to magic, I mean, it's like with, and, and by the way, I love that story about I mean, that's so many people. I think that was probably me at one point. You know, it's like, it's like, what do you, what, what do you have access to? It's like the Avon books copy of the Satanic Bible in like Barnes and Noble. Published by Avon, owned by Harper Collins, owned by Rupert Murdoch, Adam Allstar, <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there may be problems with all of those connections that need treatment and solving. And yet that ecosystem is present. That's there. And nothing happened, and nobody was able to do the first thing about it other than a neighbor just say, you know, waving a scolding finger. And yeah. that's that, you know. And and if you can fathom what it took and how many sacrifices it took yeah. to get to that moment in time, to that moment in time, it can be daunting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, uh, my grandfather fought in the Second World War. He was in the Pacific Theater as a doctor, you know, a naval doctor. And so it, at, at a certain point, it starts to rub me wrong, although I've definitely done it a lot in the past. So I've, I've been very, very vocal in this way as well. When people criticize the hypocrisies of our system without understanding the overall context, it's like, yeah, of course the system is hypocritical. Of course, people are mean sometimes, you know, it's like, yep. you know, there are massive inequalities. I mean, you bring up even like healthcare, you know, I sprained my finger two years ago and just to have it put back into place, uh, it cost me $14,000, which I'm still paying off. You know, it's just like, that, how, how, how it's, it's all they did is pull, they literally pulled my finger and that's $14,000, you know? So, so yeah, like there, but, but people have to understand there's a difference between being the guy in the room who raises your hand saying, I don't think we should do it this way. Understanding that everyone finds that guy annoying, but he's actually really important to, to people not making bad decisions. And, and that friction, friction within a system is part of the system. And if you look at any of our counterculture heroes from, you know, the sixties, seventies, eighties, Anton, or any of these people, you know, um, you, you can really see that clearly. They're not outside of whatever the system, you know, the system of liberal democracy or, 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 you know, they're exercising, they're testing the system's boundaries and that's important. Right. But there is a point where it becomes, um, complicity with the enemy and yeah, but. It, it, no, I, I appreciated that you mentioned Avon books, you know, okay. 
I mean, all of Anton's books during his lifetime, I believe, were published, uh, or maybe there were some exceptions to that, but certainly early in his career, Satanic Bible, Satanic Witch, etc. These were all published by Avon, and he wanted that. You know, he campaigned for that. He could have done some alternative thing, or he could have gone to, you know, some group in San Francisco and said, hey, why don't you self-publish this radical outsider book? But he wanted to enter the mainstream culture and to have reach. And in so doing, uh, maybe he lost something, maybe he gained something, but he certainly opened up opportunities for lots of people whose outlook was was shaken and who started asking questions apropos of Anton's point of view. I wouldn't be doing some of what I'm doing today if, if he hadn't embarked on his activities in 1966, 1967, which at the time, in fact, we were a much more culturally conservative society uh, Sergeant Pepper's notwithstanding than we are today. And he did it. He did it. So, you know, the individual has to make his or her own decisions about those things, but there's something to be said for promulgating radical ideas uh, within the ecosystem. There's something to be said for promulgating radical ideas outside the ecosystem. There's pluses and minuses to all of those, but to not have the options would be yeah. a human tragedy that could probably never be reversed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe we should, maybe we should cap it there. I mean, uh, people have no, you know, I did a podcast where I said, I, I proposed the idea of essentially taking the bill of rights as a magical system mm -hmm. and trying to really understand why each of those is important and, and, uh, consider one's, uh, position in, in light of them. But the American experiment, which we, we were speaking earlier about the importance of Enlightenment era ideas, just the basic ideas of human dignity, freedom, freedom of thought, freedom of religion, freedom of association, uh, freedom to freedom to make mistakes. Yeah. Right. Which you have to, to learn. Um, that's only been around for what? I mean, 200 250 years, something like that in the form of America, you know, like and I. that's how long most empires last in world, world historical times in world historical, um, uh, on a world historical timeline and it could go away overnight. And the idea that any of these things are set in stone, um, uh, I don't, I don't think so. I think, uh, to quote somebody, uh, you know, freedoms have to be rewon by every generation. They have to be fought for again. I appreciate that, and, and I'm grateful to you for making the space available for this discussion. I don't think that um, we began with the intention of having a, a, a more social political discussion, but that's where it went. And we're speaking from the perspective of people who have made an effort to drink very, very deeply from the wells of expression that, that we are that we are fortunate enough to inherit, I would say, in this society. I wouldn't say we're given it, where we we inherit it. And I generally stay off of politics on social media for some of the very reasons that you and I have identified during this talk, but it's a real departure and it's um, it's refreshing, you know, to be able to have this kind of discussion. So thanks for making this space. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, it's, 
for me, there's no distinction between anything. But for, for me, the reason I got interested in magic is I'm interested in the, the, the quote unquote war for human consciousness and freedom and extending that freedom. Um, because it was clear to me in the 90s that, you know, we had opened up freedom in so many ways. We now needed to open up cognitive freedom and cognitive diversity. Uh, and that at least made sense at the time. And for me, the war for, I mean, look, I mean, like I lived with Genesis for seven years, you know, it's like we carry on the, uh, we carry on the war and the war is at a very fundamental level for human freedom. And Crowley was clear about that. You can look at Liber Oz, you know, the statement of universal declaration of human, human rights. It's like the war is for the freedom of the individual. And that's a war that was pushed forward by the Masonic elements that founded America. It was a war that was pushed forward by um, Crowley in some ways and by Robert Anton Wilson, by everybody writing and talking now, just by being vocal and out uh, in, in, in a manner of speaking. And, you know, even in the 90s, you remember, it's like even in the 90s, you could still be you know, in a certain sense, burned at the stake for being into these, these ideas, or you look at, you know, you look at, um, you know, everything that went down in the eighties with Xena, uh, LaVey and Michael Aquino and all of that, or Damien Eccles, you know, I mean, it's like these, it's really easy again to be like, you know, drinking, drinking Starbucks in LA, like saying, Oh, everyone's into magic, but we, we, we should not get so overconfident because all of this could, and, and I, I think the basic point is simple. It's like, if you're into any of this stuff, how do you think that life is going to be under a totalitarian system from any part of the political spectrum? You know, the basic fundamental rule of totalitarianism is it will not accept the attention and energy of the people that rules over being placed anywhere, but on itself. And that's it. It's not even really ideological. It's just do what we say and think what we say. And if you do or think anything but what we say, then you die and your family I dies, think, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's extremely well put. I, I can add nothing to that. I, I think that's extremely well put. And and it's so important to remember, as you were making reference, uh, the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s and what happened to people, how they were harassed, lost their freedom, lost their economic well-being, lost their jobs, lost their reputations. And how far are we from that? There are times I feel we're a whisker away from Look another satanic QAnon. panic. Yeah, how how quickly could that devolve? Absolutely. It already Absolutely. has, I mean, you know. And, you know, I write about Aquino and some of these other figures in uncertain places and I still have people to this day now and then who will flash, you know, headlines on the screen from a generation ago saying, how can you uh, praise the work of someone like Michael Aquino? And they're completely <laughs> yeah. ignorant of the fact that not only have all those accusations uh, of him been roundly debunked and disproven both in courts of law as well as in myriad reportage. But some of the kids themselves uh, writing in places like the Los Angeles Times have produced op-ed pieces quite recently. Oh, One I was go look for them. I didn't know. Uh, 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 recount, you know, uh, 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 apologizing and, and voicing profound regret for when they were children having been coerced into nonsensical testimony by self-appointed, self-credentialed occult experts and counselors. And, <laughs> you know, once this gets uh, 
into the into the judicial system, it it runs wild, yeah. and people start losing jobs, money, household reputation, and um, God, you know, you mentioned Damien. I mean, he's one of our contemporaries. I mean, this yep. was five minutes ago. This was yep. five minutes ago. Yeah, I just we just and, went to the uh, his. I went to the courthouse in West Memphis. We did an episode about it for his. Uh, so we were there for his because uh, he was trying to bring DNA evidence. Um, mm. because they had new DNA evidence essentially showing that he was not there mm -hmm. and, or he, or excuse me, he wanted, they had resurfaced DNA evidence from the, the incident that, um, they refused to test. And he was basically with his lawyer saying, well, just test, test the DNA evidence. And, and they refused to do it. And so I was there like, and they had like, you know, 20 cops in full riot gear, out protecting this little courthouse from like, you know, like a few sensitive goths. And, um, and they totally, it was just, they, they did this total, they just completely shut them down. I mean, it was basically just, you know, small town, small town fascism. And it, he was heartbroken coming out. So it's like, it's not like this ended. This is still, this still goes on. So he's going to try and, um, at least I saw on YouTube, he said he's going to try and get, uh, try and get some of those laws changed at the national level, which would be fundamental. But I think, you know, the basic, like, like there, there is no cognitive freedom without physical freedom and the base, the baseline, which I think was so, you know, this was towards the end of Crowley's life. I mean, it's like the, the baseline for the, somebody who's a, an occultist is, um, the protection of the individual from the state outside of that. None of this matters. Like outside of that, I mean, you know, you're a, you're a Tibetan trying to worship, um, you know, a hidden idol in your closet under penalty of torture. You know, none of this means anything otherwise. I want to close on your words and I'm going to quote you when this is posted online. There is no cognitive freedom without physical freedom. Yeah. The defense from the state. Okay. Well, uh, that was a cherry. Con that was a good conversation. That was great. Yeah, this is yeah. You, you've entered. This is like all that I think about all day. So thank you for bearing with me. Here we go, and <laughs> we're sharing it. <laughs> uh, okay, actually, well, okay. Um, I'm talking to Ralph. You mentioned chaos theory. I'm about to talk to Ralph Abraham, who's one of the people who invented chaos math. So sweet. That should be interesting. All right. Well, I oh, hope. Yeah. Okay, so the book is Uncertain Places. Let's not forget. And where can people find it? Any place, Amazon, any place you buy your books, it'll be in print, digital, and audio. All right. Well, uh, let's talk again soon. For sure. Good to All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic meditation and mysticism where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class and until next time, hang in there.